0: Jessica Queller has written for television shows that include *Gossip Girl*, *The Gilmore Girls*, *Felicity*, *One Tree Hill*, and *Ed*. Her first book is *Pretty Is What Changes*. Thank you for joining me, Jessica. Thank you. When uh, one of the things about this book I really like is you, you talk about the, the various relationships you, you have with men, uh, and n- doesn't uh, none too excite, none too. Uh, uh, great. <laughs> I guess. Um when my
1: ex-boyfriends are not
0: going to appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I I'm wondering uh, a, a, again as a writer, I uh, I I can see a lot of the mother-daughter relations seem to have maybe percolated uh, into your the stuff you're writing for the Gilmore girls. Mm-hmm. And, and could you talk about the 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 men in your life and how that uh, how that percolated up through?
1: Well, to be fair, there have been some really wonderful men in my life who were very good to me. I had a boyfriend named Jason in the book who was with me when I got the news of the BRCA mutation, and he was not afraid, and he loved me and was wanted to stay by my side and go through it with me. And I felt in my heart that we he was not the guy for me. Long term, and um, but I had a real dilemma because many, many people in my life said, "He loves you. He's a great guy. He's smart. He's handsome. He's ambitious. He's kind. You've got problems. Just marry him and have a baby, and and don't be so particular." And um, and so that was a very, very tough choice to leave him, to leave a very good person who I loved and who loved me because in my heart I felt like it wasn't the right match for a lifetime um, and have the surgery by myself. So that, so he was a great guy and I left him anyway. Um, Then dating uh, was very problematic throughout dealing with these issues before the mastectomy during the mastectomy, right after the mastectomy. Um, but I did then have another wonderful boyfriend right after the surgeries. And he was amazing and could not care less about my recreated breasts or any of this stuff. And um, that relationship lasted for over a year, and it just it didn't work out for the normal reasons why things don't work out, but he was a great guy.
0: As you headed into this process, it's a a long process um, to do this. And one of the things I found interesting was that your state of mind, as you started to learn more, you kind of become more manic and you have these – Uh, phone rants where you were calling up your friends.
1: Wouldn't you? (laughs) I mean, wouldn't anyone?
0: I, I guess so.
1: If they were told you're not sick, you don't have cancer, but we recommend that you remove the most intimate parts of your body just to be safe.
0: Uh, yeah, no, that, that's, it's not surprising, but it's interesting that, that your observation of that, and, and it seems like there could be a spectrum of reactions, depression or... Well,
1: I was very depressed, which I write about in the book a lot of the time, too. I got especially depressed the summer before the surgery. I, um, I, I just... I had, I had a lot of fears that I would never again feel comfortable in my body, Um, that I would feel fake or deformed or something after the surgery. And um, I just, I sort of thought, it's all over for me. My youth is gone, (laughs) drama queen that I am. My youth is gone, my beauty has gone, it's all over. I'm, you know, I'm not going to ever feel normal again. And that was not the case. Um, Thankfully, that plastic surgery is so advanced now that they put you back together again, like Humpty Dumpty, very, very beautifully. And um, every woman I've talked to who's been through this, all everyone agrees that um, they're happy in their new body, they feel normal, they feel like themselves, and all of those fears were really unfounded.
0: There's a number of kind of, I guess, uh, reversals in this book, in that um, your mother, whom you say was never really a great mother uh, in, in, in in until she
1: well she wasn't she uh, wasn't all that
0: maternal until she wasn't maternal until until she was succumbing to cancer
1: i think when she was faced with her own mortality and true illness her facades and um i don't i'm searching for the right word but everything everything artificial fell away s- was stripped away and for the first time she was fully present as a mom she fully took in the value of her two daughters and or I think that she always knew the value of her daughters, but I think that she might have taken it for granted and she didn't focus on it uh, in the way that she did through her. as she got sicker. And her priorities shifted, her energy shifted, and it was really a very beautiful thing. And she became so nurturing. It was also heartbreaking because I finally had the mom I'd always yearned for, and there she was, and then I lost her.
0: And your reaction when, when you discovered you had cancer was that... I don't. I never had cancer. <laughs> I'm sorry. <you're> right. <laughs> God when, forbid. When, when you discovered that you had this gene, that um, y- you who were never interested in externals... <laughs> uh, <laughs> all, all of a
1: sudden, s- I become really fancy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you, and you, you have a different vision of your own mother's interest in, in the externals.
1: I think I was hurt as a kid because I felt neglected in some way that um, my mom was fussing about my hair and my clothes and my appearance and she wasn't paying attention to my feelings as much. And so, um, so that made me angry at the clothes and the stuff that she so valued. And she had the most magnificent things. I mean, she she was a collector of of everything of vintage clothes and um Chanel Manolo every kind of designer shoe her closet was like a museum i mean her 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 things were so beautiful but i didn't find them beautiful because i was probably jealous of them because i wanted her to pay more attention to me and um at the end of her life when that reversed and she really she really was devoted in a very present maternal way towards me and my sister. Then all of a sudden I started to cherish her things because they were moms and they were special and they were treasures and they, had emo- they were endowed with emotion all of a sudden.
0: When, when you took this test, there, there was uh, an unanticipated or maybe an anticipated side effect was all of a sudden your sister is put in the frame
1: my poor sister <laughs> i really feel terrible about how i've thrust her into the spotlight by writing about my own story she's such a trooper and she's been amazing about it but it was hard for her because i by writing about it in the op-ed page i just i exposed her situation publicly and it wasn't something that she really had decided to deal with or even face yet
0: and, and there was a lot of... Fa- you. That article actually made you famous. You were on Good Morning America.
1: Well, no, I, I, I did not do Good Morning America. They called, but I, I couldn't do it. I was on Nightline. I did a Nightline segment with Cokie Roberts and Ted Koppel narrated, which was special because it was his, one of his last shows.
0: Um, once you became uh, famous... Well,
1: (laughs) I wouldn't call myself famous. (laughs) Uh, Did that
0: change the way that you were dealing with what was happening to you?
1: Well, I certainly was not famous. No one would ever recognize me on the street. I did one Nightline segment. Um, But it did establish me as a go-to person for this subject matter. So all of a sudden, I received letters from women from all over the place, emails, friends of friends of friends of friends, um, got me messages from other women struggling with this situation. So that was really, it was really meaningful to me and really has enriched my life to have relationships with these other women.
0: Uh, all this time, when y- you had been participating in a, uh, an online forum. Could you talk about that forum?
1: Well... I also I wasn't exactly participating either. I was a voyeur. Yes, Um, there is a website called Facing Our Risk of Cancer Empowered, or FORCE, is the acronym, and it is a tremendous resource for anyone with the BRCA mutation. I, I I think I'm safe in saying it is the largest national resource on the subject, and. It's got up-to-date articles, links to everything. And the most popular part of the site is um, the message board, where women and men who are affected by the BRCA mutation write in questions. There are endless threads. Anything you could ever want to know on this topic is is there somewhere.
0: But actually, your situation was somewhat new because I think most of the uh, people who had this or or who had been diagnosed with this had you know already had relationships and, and had children had lives and, and you were kind of at the pre life stage that's still. right
1: um again wh- I tested positive for the gene in two thousand and five and so even three years ago um it was it was It was rare for a youngish woman who was single and dating to undergo a prophylactic mastectomy. In the past three years, that's changed entirely. Now it's caught on, and there are hundreds of young women in my situation. So on the message boards now, there there are lots and lots of single women in the situation. But three years ago, I, I really couldn't find anyone in my situation there
0: once you you had this diagnosis y- you really didn't believe it. And you actually went and got a a, a second test and, and frankly as I read the book my uh, i didn't I had no idea about any of this stuff, and i didn't know what had hap what was going to happen, so I was kind of turning the pages trying to figure out what was happening and and, and hoping for the best. I was hoping, <laughs> well, maybe this test is all just bogus but, you know or or something, but that's not the case, is it
1: no. Unfortunately, it's not the case. The test is very accurate, and it's been around long enough to um, have been the subject of many medical studies. So I took the test a second time, which I had been told by every medical advisor that that was not necessary, but I guess I'm a neurotic, and my dad is too. So we thought, before I take a drastic action, like choosing a mastectomy, I'd better be damn sure that... There was not a lab mess up, and the test was
0: accurate. And, and once, once you got this back, there's a, a really funny part in this book it, it, where you're talking uh, about, you know, what what your choices are, and, and you've got it laid out like a Starbucks drink.
1: Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> I wrote it that way to make it more palatable for the reader. <laughs> um, there's just there's a variety of choices. Uh, believe it or not, there are many different types of mastectomies you can have, and there are many many different procedures for reconstruction for breast reconstruction you can use silicone implants you can use saline implants you can use your natural body tissue from your belly you can use your natural body tissue from your tush you can use it from um your the your back and each one has a fancy name and um you can you can have the incisions um, a certain way. You can have nipple sparing mastectomy or skin sparing mastectomy, or um, oh, the list just goes on. So you have to become very educated to figure out what risk level you're comfort w- you're comfortable with and what's right for you.
0: But when you made this choice, there was no guideline, was there? I mean, you. W- Your doctor, it's not like the doctor says you should do this. I mean, every time I've been to the doctor, you go to the doctor and they say, okay, well, this is the problem, this is what you'll do, and then you go away. And it's kind of nice because you don't have to think. You just go there. But you found yourself in a really unusual position based on the science and technology that was available to us now that where you had to make the decision, our, our social Uh, system and and caught up with the science.
1: That's right. And I think that that is going to become more and more common uh, for every disease that's that's associated with genetic tests, because um, we have all of this information and and suddenly the information is helpful, more than helpful. It can save lives. It's incredibly useful. But It can be morally ambiguous, and it can be medically ambiguous, and um, there is no clear-cut answer. The doctors simply don't have the right answer. They can only present the pros and cons of each choice to you, and um, the patient now has to make decisions based on his or her own instincts and morality.
0: Well, you, you had the choice for... For I guess continued testing or, or, or the, the prophylactic mastectomy yes a- and when when you made that choice, t- tell me how you came to that decision or, or?
1: Well, it took me a year of manic phone calls and obsessing and sleepless nights to come to the decision and um so it's there's no short answer but i continued to collect information i kept notebooks i basically interviewed my own doctors i inter- i i met with plenty of doctors and got plenty of different opinions and um uh one of the things that i understood hmm, there's there's such a so many different answers to this question but i understood that if i shows surveillance that I would have to be tested and screened for cancer every three to six months for the rest of my life and I'd have to go through this battery of tests every three months and the fear of finding something and the false alarms of um, we think we see something and because it's you we have to be so careful and I would have to have biopsies and and all sorts of things and so um so the process of waiting for cancer to hit seemed terrible to me and and, and having the specter looming over my head consistently, really. And the other deciding factor was when I met with a breast surgeon in Los Angeles and I said, okay, let's say in the absolute, let's say I, I, I wait and we do surveillance and I do get cancer. I'm in the 87% group, and I'm the one who gets cancer. Let's say it's the absolute best case scenario, and we catch it at the earliest stage. What happens? And he told me that at the very least, I would have a lumpectomy and radiation. And um, because I was BRCA positive, at that point, they would it would be medically advised that I have a double mastectomy. So it did not make logical sense for me to me, to hang around, wait till I got cancer, and then have the mastectomy anyway, and then have to worry about the cancer recurring for the rest of my life. If, if, it just, I ultimately decided that I should just get it over with and have a peace of mind.
0: You have this description where you worry, you perceive yourself as a time bomb, Mm -hmm. which I think is really, it's a scary but informative vision
1: of yourself. Um you know if somebody tells you that you are scientifically or statistically assured of getting a disease that could be fatal and you just have to wait around and hope for the best that's how you see yourself
0: once once you decide to do the surgery y- you find yourself plunged into another weird world mm-hmm. which is the world of uh, of the surgeons themselves mm-hmm. and, and the first the the first reconstructive breast surgeon you talk to is, just doesn't sound like the best choice.
1: No. Um, his name is Dr. Ward in the book. It's not his actual name. And um, interestingly, he's he is one of the top reconstruct uh, plastic surgeons in California. So he is an excellent... Um, uh, I want to say the word esthetician. <laughs> he, he, make, he creates a beautiful aesthetic results for breast surgery, for um, his breast patients. But um, he was so focused on the aesthetic results that he suggested I not remove all of my breast tissue. I, I keep a percentage of it around to cushion the implants because it's sort of hard to describe in an interview, but Um, if you're a normal woman, if you're a Hollywood actress and you say, I want to get a boob job, you go in, you choose silicone implants, and you put them in, and they're cushioned by your own natural tissue. If you're a mastectomy patient, the point is to remove every bit of tissue possible, every cell, except for a thin layer of skin and muscle. So when you put the silicone in, there's nothing to cover the plastic casing except a layer of skin. And which means you can sometimes see the rippling of the implant. You can see the contour of the implant. So um, this this doctor suggested that I keep some of my tissue to cushion the implant because it'll make it look prettier and softer and more natural. And I said, but doctor, the whole point is to take out every cell so I don't get cancer. And his response was, well, you'll still decrease your chances of cancer. You know, So you'll decrease it by... 85% instead of 90% or whatever the number was, and, um, but you'll look fabulous.
0: At, at that point, looks became less important to you, but but also, interestingly enough, uh, you wanted to change your breast size, and this was an opportunity. No. So it's interesting how this many is
1: also embarrassing <laughs> this whole <laughs> this whole book subject. Well, yes,
0: uh, it, it, that's one of the things I found about that that uh, really appealed to me. How, how frank you were uh, about this book about the way women perceive their bodies and their breasts. Mm-hmm. There, there's all sorts of scenes in this book mm-hmm. where. You're with your friends or you're with other people who have had mastectomies. And now I'm a guy, so it's kind of embarrassing for me to talk about this. Mm -hmm. You and your friends are sitting around whipping off your shirt (laughs) and showing us that this is not not the way most men perceive women to behave.
1: I have found I have the most incredible women friends in my life, and I have found that women come to the rescue and help each other in crisis. And it's such a beautiful, amazing thing. And so, yes, we were, all of us in the situation, were tearing our shirts off and saying, look, look at my new boobs. Don't they look pretty? They're not so bad. Don't be afraid.
0: It's an interesting, your sister then comes up with, I think, a a really, because there's all these, the the situations that you describe are, are almost absurd. And, and <laughs> your your sister has a a great summary of this. She says it's a it's a postmodern world.
1: It is. It's a post postmodern world. It is truly um, surreal.
0: And, and there there are many. I think the the for me the most surreal moments of, of the book were the the surgery itself as you are being rolled in and the the days afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I. Would presume that's in part because you yourself were were under such heavy medication.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you mean that that's why I experienced it as surreal. Uh,
0: yes, and and for me, there's a a, a double, uh, a remove <laughs> because I I can't even I can barely wrap my brain around it.
1: Well, I had never had surgery of any kind before these operations, except having my wisdom teeth removed. So just simply going in for an operation and um, being in the hospital for four days. I'd spent plenty of time in the hospital with my mother, but being the patient and being on the operating table and looking at the doctors and their masks, I felt like I was in a play. I felt like, this can't be real. But I think that's probably how most people feel when they're having surgery.
0: When you got this diagnosis, uh, did you have health care benefits that oh, take thank, care of Oh, thank this? God
1: I had fantastic health care Coverage. Um, I am part of the Writers Guild of America as a TV writer, and so the, the the WGA paid for everything, really. And I had, I was very fortunate not to have any any issues with insurance.
0: That's that's amazing and, and fortunate. Um, once you came out of this, you um, were understandably happy and and. Could you talk about your your re- recovery?
1: Well, um, I had three operations. The first one was the most significant, and then um, the first one was the hardest to recover from. And then um, I don't know. Each each one each one required some recovery. Basically, I was unable to exercise much for almost a year that was hard and i do yoga so i was devastated not to be able to to do yoga for more than a year really um i i think i would have been fine after a year but but i had stopped and i didn't start up again for different reasons um so you know it's i don't really know what to say about the recovery i i don't remember it that well um, it seemed to be slow at the time, and then it was fast, and you just, the body heals.
0: It, it's interesting, the, the speed of the mood changes that, that you describe, that you go through so many moods so fast a, as you're recovering.
1: Like what in particular are you thinking well, of? Well, you,
0: you, you talk about being, you're almost like madly chipper at some points, and at other points, your your feet. You describe yourself as feverish. Um, you, you're going to these kind of wild parties with your girlfriends, where you're showing off your breasts. Oh, that and, was
1: that was throughout the surgeries. That was that was in between surgeries. When I was not fully reconstructed yet, I'd I'd recovered from one operation. And I had another one ahead. I'd just get dressed and go to a cocktail party, and I was on Vicodin and drinking champagne and. You know, I was a mad woman.
0: <laughs> in, in, in retrospect, do, do you think that was the right thing to do?
1: Why not? What else was <laughs> I going to do, stay in bed and hide and cry?
0: Now, you... I, no.
1: I don't know. Um, no. I, I don't have any regrets about any, any anything that's happened. Uh,
0: now, you've come out of this, and you you still... There's still more things you have to endure ahead, aren't there?
1: Unfortunately, um, the BRCA1 mutation confers a 44% chance of ovarian cancer and ovarian cancer is deadly. There is no existing screening method that is that really is acceptable for ovarian cancer. So in the majority of cases, by the time you're diagnosed, it's advanced. Um, so, ovarian cancer is very dangerous, and uh, if I had already ha- had my children, doctors at this point would recommend that you have your ovaries removed at age 35. Since I want to have a biological baby and I haven't yet, um, doctors feel that it's prudent to wait till about age 40, but at age 40, you really, if you want to be safe, you should remove your ovaries. So, I'm now 38. And um, I have that hanging over
0: my head. And you don't, at this point, have any prospects, as I understand it. Is that... Is that <laughs> oh, I'm do not... you know that, Rick? <laughs> I, I, I I, I, well, it, do you? I hope you do. You <laughs> um, will soon. I Trust me on this.
1: <laughs> I, I don't have... I'm, I don't have a boyfriend. And I, after I ended my last relationship, which was about a year ago, I decided that I wanted to pursue having a baby on my own because I didn't want to put the pressure on a new relationship of, oh yeah, you're into me, that's great, let's get pregnant immediately. I just thought that that was an untenable situation. So I thought that I would try to be a single mother and um, use an anonymous donor and have the baby and and make sure that I was able to have that experience and then be a single mom and find love afterwards. So I've really been focused on fertility for the past year and not so much focused on dating because I think it's that is really tricky to do at the same time. <laughs> um, but because I'm 38, um, I've tried a few times and I, and I'm not yet pregnant and that's, I've been told that's totally normal, but um, it's a process and I'm still in the process.
0: Well, if you're going to have children and you have, know you have this genetic mutation, you'll pass this genetic mutation on to your children.
1: Well, this is a very complicated subject. First of all, I won't definitely pass it on to them. They'll have a my My child would have a fifty percent chance of inheriting it for me. Um, there is a new technique called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. It is really like a science fiction movie. Um, they can now remove my egg and make an embryo in a petri dish and then screen or make a bunch of embryos, screen the embryos, see which one inherited the BRCA mutation, and toss those out, and only implant the ones that did not inherit the gene. I, at this point, have decided not to utilize that technology because it's too heavy on me to select out an embryo, a child who carries a m- mutation that my sister and I both carry and a mutation that, you know, wouldn't affect their health until their 30s if if then. And and I'm just sort of gambling that if I have a daughter, and God forbid if she inherits this from me by the time she's 35, there will be a cure for breast cancer.
0: A- and your your sister... Did she, did she ever take the, the test?
1: She did. She swore she'd never take it, and she didn't want to know about it, but then she went through the surgeries with me and said, that wasn't that bad after all, really. If you could do it, I probably could. And then she had a baby, and she changed her opinion of things. She felt a much more serious responsibility to her own health because she had it to her own child. And so she took the test privately, did not tell her husband or me or our dad. And she ultimately, she did test positive And she finally told us about a month later, and she quickly had the surgery.
0: And when you decided to write this as a book, um, what, at what point were you in, in the, 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 yeah, this process?
1: I was working on the book proposal, during my surgeries. So um, uh, since I I left the Gilmore Girls and I left TV writing and decided to take a hiatus from my normal job, which is as a TV writer, to give myself time to recover and go through the operations. But I'm very work-oriented, so I thought, well, what am I going to do other than sit around and feel sorry for myself and try to heal? So I thought, well, this would be a good time to write a book proposal. So I was working on the proposal before the operations, during the operations. It was very hard because I was in the thick of it, and I had no idea how the story ended, and I didn't know what the story was. Um, but I I pretty much um, figured out a take on it and and finished the proposal and sold the proposal just as I had finished my final surgery and was going back to my normal life, so... I started writing the book, so so the, so the events were unfolding as I was writing the book.
0: And, and the the prose in this book is really quite beautiful. It's very clear and and it, it's funny too.
1: Thank you so much. It, that it, means so, a lot to me.
0: It's really wonderfully written and, and readable. And it, there's also, I guess, a lot of suspense. So could you talk a, a, about the, the the actual crafting of the prose? Did you have to rewrite this? Did you show this to people?
1: Well, I'm a drama writer, <laughs> so my writing tends, I, you know, I think tends to be theatrical because I, I write drama for television, and that's what I do. Um, I, I had figured out the structure of the book in advance but before I wrote the proposal, and I knew that I wanted the first third of the book to chronicle my mother's diagnosis of ovarian cancer and end with her death and the second third of the book to to pick up from when I tested positive for the gene until my surgery, and the last third was um, the surgery until present day. So I knew the structure. I looked at it as a three-act structure. I kind of looked at it as a play, and um, and I had the prologue in there that was played with time a little differently, but... um, so, I had a very clear outline. I outlined the book and and one thing that was lucky when you 're writing nonfiction is I knew the story <laughs> i didn 't have to invent anything. I knew exactly except the stuff that hadn 't happened yet while I was writing i I knew what happened and I knew how I felt about what happened. so it really was a matter of just sitting down and having the discipline to put it down on paper. Um, I had one friend who was so wonderful I, I had a lot of friends who supported me through this process, but I had one girlfriend who's an actress and incredibly bright girl, Jillian Bach, went to Brown University and is just an all-around smart, great person. And she stayed up every night and would wait for the installments. And she'd read chapter by chapter and just give me her feedback as a reader and tell me, I think you're getting a little too loopy in this section. And, um, you know, I, I'd pull back on the self-indulgence in this section. So she was, she just gave me very frank, emotional responses
0: you know, you're. It strikes me that you're writing in a genre here. I mean, there are other cancer memoirs out there.
1: Um, well, there's one amazing book called *Cancer Vixen* mm-hmm. that I adore. That is a graphic novel. Um, you know, I I like to think of it as a me- just sheer, just simply as a memoir, um, but of course, it is an issue book as well. So.
0: Did you read other books like this to to uh, to find out how, how
1: I read a ton of memoirs, not specifically cancer memoirs. I just read books that I admired by writers I admired and 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 tried to sort of um let their prose seep into me because I had never been a prose writer before, except privately in my diaries, so this was a very new thing for me. Um, I read a ton of books, and one of my favorite writers is Tobias Wolfe, and I read This Boy's Life every day before writing because I thought his prose was so clean and lucid and funny, and he's one of my very favorite writers. So,
0: Are, are you working on another book?
1: Not at the moment.
0: You're not going to tell us the story of your, your, your fertility story? <laughs> that just seems like a if natural. If someone
1: wants me to write it, I'll write it, but it hasn't come up yet.
0: Boy, I... I That's shocking. It hasn't
1: come up yet. Well, this book isn't even out.
0: (laughs) Trust me, they will want the fertility story. (laughs) I've been speaking with Jessica Queller. Her new book is Pretty is What Changes. Thank you for speaking with me, Jessica. Thank you so much.